Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoy today's message. So let me ask you a question as we start this morning. How do you react to moments of crisis? How do you react to moments of crisis? Because I believe that in crises, it actually reveals the core convictions of our hearts. In a moment of crisis, I can only react in a way that reflects my true beliefs about life and about God and about my existence. I'll never forget many years ago when Shane and I, we were just married, we moved into the first place we ever stayed in. And just as we moved in, all our boxes were still left unpacked. We just went away and we came back and they had broken into our house. And that's like, that's like a buffet for, a, for like a, you know, a guy breaking into your house if everything is still packed. So it's like the Uber Eats of break-ins for that guy. And he can just go from box to box and just select whatever he wants. And if you've had your privacy kind of invaded like that, you just feel uneasy. If you've ever had that happen to you, you feel uneasy. You feel violated. And so that first evening, we sleeping, just had this happen to us. So you're kind of uneasy already. And that evening, middle of the night, pitch black, the alarm goes off. It's just blaring. And I just wake up and I lie there and I'll just be honest. I'll just be honest. I did not move for 30 seconds. <laughs> and it's a flat. It's not like there's like rooms, there's wings of the house this person can probably be. And it's like literally, he's probably right next to us right now. For 30 seconds, I couldn't move. And after 30 seconds, all the guys are like, you are so weak, Joe. And so after 30 seconds, I get up and I go And in the end, lo and behold, a cat had jumped into an open window. I wanted to strangle that cat, I'm telling you. But that evening, I made a decision in my heart. It's become a conviction that whenever that happens, if there's a crisis moment in the middle of the night in our house, I will immediately get up and I will go straight to the danger. I will meet the crisis with a conviction. That has been my decision from that evening. Now, let me show you what happened to the early church in a moment of crisis and how their conviction immediately came into play. So quickly in your Bible, Acts chapter 8. I'm going to jump around a whole bunch today, so keep up if you can. It says here, on that day, a severe, so the book of Acts is the story of the early church, and it says, on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. So in other words, violent oppression suddenly met the young church, the early church. They didn't have buildings and programs, and they didn't have clout in the community. They were a ragtag group of people, and suddenly they are violently getting oppressed by the government. And what does it say? It says, and all except the apostles. The apostles were God's, or Jesus' chosen early group of leaders, his followers, So he says, everyone except the leaders of the early church were scattered across the land because of this persecution. So think about that. Not the leaders of the early church, the people of the early church. In our context, the programmers and the poets and the plumbers and the pediatricians, they got scattered because of persecution. And what did they do in that moment of crisis? That they shrink back, that they go and crawl up in some hole and wait there. This is what they did. It said, so those who were scattered, the people like you and me, they went on their way preaching the word. The people of the early church, when they were met with crisis, they immediately made much of Jesus. 
through their calendars, through their finances, through their gifts and talents, through their relationships, they set into action. Because Jesus was so great in their hearts, they started making Jesus great on their lips, great in their time, great in their gift set, great in their relationships. They could do nothing else but say, we have to make the name of Jesus known. When crisis struck, the conviction of the church set into action. Now, friends, let's be honest. 2020 was a moment of crisis for many of us. Relationally, spiritually, emotionally, economically, it was a moment of crisis. And my question to us is, for you this morning, is how did you react in this moment of crisis? Did I shrink back or did I step forward? When you were squeezed this year, did Jesus come out? Or did something else come out? Right? Let's be honest. A whole bunch of things came out. When I was squeezed. Because in this last week of our series, Taking Stock, we're saying we want to take practical stock of what's happened in our lives. Listen to Lamentations 3 again. It says, let's examine and probe our ways. God, help me to take stock of my life in this year. And what? And turn back to the Lord. And so today, I'm going to ask us, after we've looked at our habits and relationships and our lives, how we steward the the tens and the fives and the ones, today we're going to ask the question, what happened to my finances in crisis? If you're a Christian this morning, it's not a conversation about money, it's a conversation about generosity. That's how Christians live, in response to the generous nature of God, the generosity of Jesus. How did I respond in generosity? So what do we do? In a moment of crisis, three very simple things today. Number one, in a moment of crisis, what do I do financially? If you're a Christian, I honor God by stewarding well. I honor God. In a moment of crisis, I respond from conviction how I honor God by stewarding well. Guys, let's be honest. According to the world, ownership is happiness. Isn't that true? The guy who dies with the most toys wins. So ownership is how you measure success. But the Bible never speaks of us owning anything. It speaks of us doing what? Stewarding the things that God rightfully owns. A steward is someone who manages something on behalf of someone else. So the Bible says true success is not what you have. True success is how you steward what God has entrusted to you. Psalm 89, 11 says this, the heavens are yours. The earth is yours. The world and everything in it, you founded them. God is the owner of all things. And the question is, how do I steward? In a moment of crisis, that which belongs to God. So author Michael Whitmer, he says this, how can you tell, ask the question, how can you tell if you are winning the game of life? Don't you ask that question to yourself. How can you tell if you're winning the game of life? And he says the standard scoreboard answer in the modern age is simple. Success, stuff, and status. That's the scoreboard. Success, what have you done? Stuff, what do you have? And status, what do other people think about you? That's the standard scoreboard. And you see what's the, what's the, the through line between all three of those things? It's the word you. It's all about you. What do you have? What have you done? What do you own? What do people think about you? 
But the Bible starts at a completely different place. It doesn't start with you. It starts with God. It says if God is the owner of all things, if God is great, if God is generous, if God is all loving, if God is the one who has given us life and all that we have, it's a completely different conversation. How do I steward what God has given me? Pastor Mike Brewer says, if you are a Christian, if you've put your faith in Jesus for the salvation of your life, for renewed life in Jesus, he says the two hardest things for Christians to bring into alignment with God's character and heart is what? It's our wallets and our zippers. (laughs) Isn't that true? You can laugh. That's That's the truth, guys. When it comes to money and sex, we want to be our own gods. I want to be my own God. Don't tell me how to spend my money and don't tell me in what bed I can jump. (laughs) That's how it is. But listen to Proverbs, how different the Bible's perspective is. Proverbs 3 verse 9 says what? Honor the Lord with your possessions. Not honor yourself, not honor your dreams, not honor the culture, not honor your family. It says honor the Lord with your possessions. So how do I steward? If you say, yes, I want, to, I want to steward in a moment of crisis, whatever God has given me, whether it's much or little, I want to be a good steward of what God has given me. How do I do that? So simple question. If, if Shay, my wife, were to pass away, maybe t- today, that's rough stuff, guys. Let's not even think about that. Um, see, there she goes, already offended. Um, <laughs> If she were to pass away, and in her last kind of will and testimony, the, the, this last thing that she asks of me is to go and scatter her ashes at the ocean. How would I react to that? How would I steward that wish? And why there? You know, would I then just take her ashes and just kind of throw it in the garden? Do you think that would be an honoring way of honoring her wishes? No. What would I do if her heart was at the ocean because she's had good memories there, because she loves that space, because it's close to her heart? If her heart is there, for me to honor her, it means my heart has to be there. My heart has to be where her heart is. Then I honor her. So my question to us this morning is, where is the heart of God? Where is the heart of God? Because if I want to honor God, my heart will be where God's heart is. And guess what? God needs nothing from me, friends. He needs nothing from us. But his heart is somewhere. He is busy with a work. And so let me just read you scripture. Where is the heart of God? Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus' vision and his passion is what? To build the church. Ephesians 2.20. Jesus himself is the cornerstone of what? Of the church. Acts 20, 28, Jesus obtained the church with his own blood. Ephesians 3, 10, Jesus' multifaceted wisdom will be made known, what? Through the church. Romans 12, 5, Jesus' body is the church. 1 Corinthians 3, 17, Jesus says God's temple is holy and that church of his is the temple. And I can go on and on and on. Where is the heart of God? It's with his church. He gave his very life for his church. He didn't didn't come to start a religion per se. He came to start to get going with a spirit-infilled family called the church. And why is that so important? Because Jesus says in Matthew 16, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
Where my wallet goes, my heart is. Isn't that true? It's that pastor's comment again. My wallet and my zipper and my calendar shows me more about the God that I worship than anything I do on a Sunday. I can sing many good songs and I can give lip service to Jesus. But what is represented in my bank statement speaks about the God that I serve. And God says, my heart is with my church. Can I tell you why, Shay and I, why we give faithfully and generously and consistently to this church financially every single month? You know why? Because I believe that God's heart is with his church. His church is the plan A to Z of bringing the kingdom to this earth. So I want to be where God's heart is. You know, one of my spiritual mentors, Donnie, who leads Doxedo Blumfontein, where we came from, he once sat with one of the people, the guy wanted to have a meeting with Donnie, and he was angry. He was angry about so many people in the church and about so many things in the church, about so many of the decisions in the church. And they sat there, and they went back and forth for more than an hour. This man was filled with anger with so many things in the church. And Donnie says he's not a very super spiritual guy. But he says he so clearly suddenly in the conversation felt God saying to him, ask him this question. And he asks it. He says, when was the last time in this year that you gave faithfully and financially to the church? And he says, the guy suddenly dead quiet. He just sat there. And Donnie says he feels this further prompting. And he says to him, you know what? I don't think that you are angry at the church. I think you have lost your heart for the local church. I think you've lost your heart for the local church. And he says, suddenly that 50-year-old man bursts into tears. In that coffee shop, two men sitting there having a good old conversation. And this man is crying. And he says, it's true. I've lost my heart for the church. And from that conversation, that redemption that came from that, he says that man, he was a very successful businessman in Bloom. He went back, and not because Donnie asked him, because of conviction, he went and he paid everything that he felt he should have been paying over that whole year. He acted from a generous spirit. Where is my heart? Because God's heart is with his church. So what does that look like? I think many times when I get to this part of the conversation, people will say, okay, okay, so how much should I give? How much, Joe? Tell me, what's the damage? What do I owe the big man upstairs so that he will get off my case, right? How much? And I want to challenge us from the get-go with two things. Number one, I do not believe there is a command anywhere in the New Testament that speaks to New Testament Christians about a specific amount or percentage that you have to give. Because the, the New Testament is preoccupied with a greater value than simply this is what you only have to do. It has this bigger vision and it's called generosity. I want you as the people of Jesus to be generous. And so secondly, if I'm asking constantly, okay, but how much, how much, how much, I'm asking the wrong question. That's like couples over 10 years of ministry sitting with me, asking me, but how far is too far sexually? How much can we do before it's sin? How much touching? How many, you know, how many clothes do you have? You know, it can still be on our bodies and it's, and it's okay with the big man. You know what you tell them? That's the wrong question. That's the wrong question. 
It's almost the difference between gambling and marriage. When I think about this issue of generosity, in gambling, what's your goal? The other evening, we went to eat something there at the Dome, and we walked past the, you know, it's like, it's like half past nine in the evening, and there are people sitting there, and they pulling that little slot machine. Your strategy in gambling is what? I want to put in as little as possible so that I can get, hopefully, as much as possible for myself. And the difference between that and marriage, if, if someone came to sit with me over coffee and asked me, Joe, but seriously, how much do I have to love my wife? Seriously, like, just tell me. Like, when can I stop? Like, is it just one coffee a week and just tell her some nice words and then I can do my own thing? When can I be released from love in this marriage? You know, when, when's the bar been covered? It's like, dude, what are you saying? <laughs> Why are you married? That's the second question. Why did your wife marry you is the third question. You wouldn't think like that. Yes, ladies, would you marry a man like that? You know, we're doing the pre-marriage course, and he tells you, but seriously, can we just get like a stipulation for how much love you will need so that I'm covered? No, in marriage we say, I will give of myself. I will sacrifice myself. Why? Because of love. Self-sacrificial love. So the question is not how much. The question is how generous, God, can I be with what you have given me? How generous, Lord, can I be? I think of Robert Latonio. He was a man who died in 1969. He was a prolific businessman and inventor. He had more than 300 patents to his name in the earth-moving equipment world. And he, for most of his life, gave away 90% of his income to the church. He was a man of deep faith and a businessman, and he lived off of 10% of his income for most of his life. Now, just imagine that man, someone meeting him in the church lobby, just saying, what are you doing? You don't have to do that. You can just give 10%, and then it's done. The rest is yours. Don't you think he would say, please, don't box me in with your legalism. (laughs) It's not about 5% or 10% or 15%. It doesn't matter. I want to be generous. That's what I want to do. So friends, for some of us, 5% is incredibly generous. For some of us, 25% is not even touching you. That's the reality. Jesus is not into legalistic measures and rules. He challenges us with his love and says, be generous. I love C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. I will probably quote this book, the whole thing. You can piece this whole book together probably of like in two years of sermons. But let me just read this to you. He says on the topic of giving, he says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. If our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, and amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. Sure. That's tough. <laughs> he says, if, if my colleague, I know we make exactly the same amount of income. If we live exactly the same way, I'm not being generous. It means we have fundamentally the same worldview. I say I'm a Christian, but I don't live like one. No, he says this. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, <laughs> I should say that they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. That's rough, guys. But that's the truth. That's mature 
Christianity. Yes, God, I want this and this and this and this, but I want your kingdom even more. I want to be generous. So what do we do in moments of crisis? We honor God by stewarding well. And some of us have, at this point, not much. And some of us have a whole lot. That's not the point. The point is, how am I stewarding what I have? Secondly, in a moment of crisis, what do I do? I choke out greed in my life. How? By living generously. I choke out. Imagine uh, Homer Simpson choking his son. Have you seen that? Millions of times in The Simpsons. And his eyes kind of pop out like that. I have to think about greed in my life, being choked by Homer Simpson. What a horrible picture. Choking out greed. How? By giving generously. Listen to Ecclesiastes 5.10. It says, the one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver. (laughs) And the one who loves wealth, not who has wealth, not is stewarding wealth, who's not creating wealth. No, the one who loves wealth is never satisfied with income. You see, the world says the true success and true joy is getting and getting and getting. It's gathering and gathering and gathering. And the Bible says true success is giving and giving and giving and giving. You know, one of my faith heroes, Tim Keller, we just spoke about him before the service, leads a church in New York. And he said they would do this massive series in the city where they're inviting people and they would do it on the seven deadly sins. And he says the evening when they spoke about lust, the place is packed. The guys are hanging out the windows. The evening they speak about anger, it's packed. Everyone is angry. How do I deal with my anger? He says the evening we spoke about greed, no one there. He says as a pastor in New York, He's had thousands of people come to him and confess, whether they're Christian or not. They just want to confess to some, so they see him as like a holy man. I just need to confess my things to you. He says he's heard confessions of every sort in the world. But the one thing in more than 30 years of ministry in New York that he's never heard someone come to tell him, Pastor, I think I'm greedy. Which one of us would say that not just I want money and I need it and I want to steward it, but I love it. I love it. I want it. I want to dive into it like Scrooge McDuck and swim in it and drink it and eat it. None of us. And yet Jesus speaks about this more than anything else because he knows this is the most incredible blessing that God has given us, but it has the most incredible pull toward ruling us. And I think 2020, can I be honest with you? This is my wrestling. I think 2020 exposed this moment of crisis. What kind of grip either money had on my heart or what kind of grip my heart had on money? Matthew 6, verse 19. In between these two iconic statements that Jesus makes, even if you're not a Christian, you've probably heard these. In between these two iconic statements about finances where Jesus says, number one, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You've heard about that maybe some way. And secondly, he says, you cannot serve both God and money. In between those two, he sandwiches the most interesting verse. He says this. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Isn't that strange? 
Jesus says that when finances and, 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 and materialism becomes my God, I'm gripped by those things. What? He says your whole life becomes darkened. You become blinded. You become deceived. God wants to free us. So you know what the Bible says? If, if not money, not wealth, but the love of money and wealth, if that is one of the most intense sins in the New Testament. You know what the antidote to it is? If, if greed has this gripping power on us, the Bible says the antidote is to give generously. The antidote to greed is to give generously and see how the Holy Spirit just peels apart your white knuckle grip from the love of money. 1 Timothy 6, 17, it says this. Paul is writing to this young church pastor called Timothy, and they're pastoring a young church. And he says this to them. He says, instruct those who are rich. Quickly, everyone put up your hand if you're rich. Yes, everyone who says you're rich? <laughs> okay, we'll get back to that. He says, everyone who is rich in the present age, tell them not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God. Am I worshiping God and stewarding money, or am I worshiping money and stewarding God in my life? In verse 18, he says this, instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share. Now we say, whew, luckily he's speaking to all the rich people. So you're like, yes, you rich people, you better be generous. We're like in the church today, we're like, no one in this church. Those people out there, those rich people, they better be generous. Jesus, you know, he's speaking to them. Do me a favor, write down this website, globalrichlist.com, globalrichlist.com, right after the service. You can go and do this yourself. You go and type in, you make sure that it's South African rands. You can either go by income or by the package that you have or your benefits. But let me tell you, quick math here. If you make 5,000 rand a month, which 18-year-old aspires? When I'm 55 years old, I just want to make 5,000 rand a month. That's like my dream. I just want to retire by making 5,000 rand a month. If you make 5,000 rand a month, do you know that you are in the top 15% richest people in the world? You're in the top 15 percentile of richest people in the world. If you make 20,000 rand with all your benefits included, 20,000 rand as a couple a month, you are in the 0,44 percentile richest people in the world the world. Friends, we are rich. And Jesus says, my people don't have an issue with money because we steward it well, because we love God and we use what he has given us to bless the city, to build the church, to feed the poor, to raise up those around us. So impressed again with our community groups the last couple of weeks, just serving one another. That takes time and money. I think this picture of my finances and my life, maybe to see the picture of the Dead Sea. You know the Dead Sea? Tourist attraction where all the people just go and lie kind of on the water and you don't sink. All that salt in the water just holds you on top of the water. It's amazing. And this kind of body of water is what hydrologists will call an endoheric basin. It means that the water is not flowing anywhere. It doesn't have an outflow. So because of the fact that it gathers together like that, it becomes toxic. You don't find fish in the Dead Sea. You don't find animals thriving there because it has nowhere to go. 
And God says, if finances become an endoheric basin in your life, you are just hoarding it up for yourself. It will toxically poison you. What is the antidote? It's to let it flow. (laughs) God, where can I put your money to use? To build the kingdom, to build the church, to bless those around me. So let's make it practical. A couple of last things here. I want to help you. If you say today, yes, I want to choke out greed in my life by giving generously. How do we do that? Three things. I think you need a conviction. I think you need to think about automation. And I think you need transparency in your life. Firstly, you need a conviction. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, he famously had this one-liner statement about his money. He said, earn as much as you can, save as much as you can, give as much as you can. Friends, that is not Sunday weekend Christianity conviction speaking. That is deep-rooted conviction. God, I'm going to earn as much as I can because you've blessed me. I'm going to save as much as I can and be, and be a good steward of what you've given me. But I am going to give as much as I can. We need a conviction about our giving to the local church. And that means that I don't simply stop giving when things are tough. Friends, this year was tough. That's the reality. And all of us had shrinking and growing bank accounts. But I say to God, because it's not stuck on some amount that's going to please Jesus, it's about generosity. I say, God, what will be generous in whatever circumstances I find myself? For some of us, like I said, 5% will be incredibly generous. That's between you and God. For some of us, 15% is like a holiday. So I need to have a conviction. I don't just give when I remember to. I sit there on the couch. Oh my goodness, giving to the church. Oh, you know, get out my banking app. Okay, there it's done. Three months later, I remember again. Oh, I should probably give. That's not a conviction. We don't just give when we feel we can afford it. I'll never forget having a conversation with a bunch of young students and the one girl says to me, but after I've, you know, I've, I've eaten out and I've done all these things and I've had all my fun, there's nothing left at the end of the month. And it's almost like as she said that, like you could just see the thing, like the, the lights coming on, like, oh my goodness, I guess I should give first and then live off of the rest. It's like, Hallelujah. I need a conviction about my finances. But you need to automate the important things, friends. Wouldn't you love it if your employer said, whenever I remember, I'll pay your salary. I promise. Don't worry. I've got like a reminder on my phone to pay it over. You will say, I do not accept that. I want it to be automated. And friends, that's how I give. I do not give when I remember. I have a scheduled payment on my bank account that goes off every single month. We need to automate the important. And I want to challenge some of us as couples maybe here today to go back and have that conversation. Say, what will be generous for us and how are we consistently giving? And thirdly, I think you need transparency. I think some of us need to go to a good friend or another couple and say, listen, here's our budget. We're playing open cards. You don't do that in the world. You do that in the church because people love you and say, help us. We want to be generous, but we don't, we don't know. There are some very wise and gifted people in this church financially that can help you. Are we willing to be transparent? So let me show you an example of this. I'm going to give you a quick financial feedback from Hatfield in this year. 
All the finances people will love this. It's all graphs. So the blue line is our actual income from 2019. So you can see where we started last year. We started from the bottom, friends, and now we're here. We started at nothing. And look at how God blessed us. Every single month, that is what should happen when you plant a church. Every single month as God is adding people and people's convictions about who Jesus is, our income will grow. And now you can see going into the actual of 2020, that red line, amazingly, we started where we ended last year and we continued to grow in 2020. Now that black line is the Doxa family for all 30 of our campuses internationally. We have to make an, an assessment to say, where do we think we will, will end up? Otherwise, we can't budget. And I want to say two things about our budget this year. The first thing is I celebrate the fact that in 2020, people gave incredibly generously. As a church, there are people and families in this church that, that planted a flag in their life and said, we will give generously. And I want to say, I celebrate all those people today. Small amounts. Some people give consistently. There are students in the church that give 100 rand every single month because for them, that's a lot. But the other thing I want to say, and that, that, that's a bit of a lament in my heart, is how inconsistent our income was this year. Do you see that our, one of our lowest months is right next to one of our highest months? <laughs> and the church is not a product-selling business. Uh, we just sold less cell phones this, you know, last month. That's why our income was down. No, friends, we believe in the church. Shay and I gave every single month because we believe in what Jesus is doing. Were there some tough months for us? Oh, yes, baby. But I believe in Jesus. So I want to ask you to trust with us and to give faithfully as a church. Maybe I'm preaching to the choir this morning. That's very possible. But can we then say together, God, we want to be known as a generous church. I finish off with this this morning. The last thing that we do in a moment of crisis like this, yes, we honor God and yes, we choke out greed. But the last thing we do is we cultivate contentment. We cultivate contentment how? By delighting ourselves in God. Delighting ourselves in God. Listen to Psalm 37. It says, trust in the Lord and do what is good. How do I do that? Verse 4. Take delight in the Lord. Friends, let me tell you a secret. If you try and apply what I said today, just mechanically saying, I'm just going to start giving generously. I'm just going to start choking out greed by doing all these things you will be so despondent so quickly. You will be so frustrated and so angry if it does not come from a place of saying, God, if my first delight in my life is not you, then none of these things will make sense. Then I will give from a place of obligation. I will give from a place of feeling tension and shame. I will give from a place of religiosity. And like the elder brother in the prodigal son story, he lived a perfect life according to Jesus in that sense. He walked the line, straight and narrow. But when he was confronted with not getting what he wanted, what did he do? He shouted at his father. He said, I've been following you my whole life. I've sacrificed everything for you. Where's my party? Where's, where's my celebration? What was going on? He was not interested in the father. He was interested in the things of the father. He did not have his delight in the Father. He had his delight in the things that the Father could give him. 
And so his obedience was mechanical. It was religious. It was forced. See, if I look at the things that other people have, and I see that's not right because they have the life that I want. She has the husband that, that I want. You know, he has the career that I want. What is it saying to me? It's the dipstick coming out of my heart saying to me that I am finding my delight not in God but in the things of this world. And therefore, I'm angry. God, I am being faithful. Why are you not blessing me? God, I'm doing my part. Where's my party? But the, the gospel is the other way around. Jesus says you will never be able to steward well and to give generously if you cannot delight in God because you have a relationship with him. Because you have been reunited with him through Jesus. You know, Jesus tells this parable. And he says, this man finds a treasure in a field and he buries it again. And it says, because of the joy of what he has, he sells everything he has to buy that field. Why? Because that treasure was so great. It was from joy that he went and sold all that he had. Friends, Giving and generosity comes from a place of Jesus being the greatest treasure in my life. Jesus, you died on a cross so that I may live. Your blood flowed for me that I may be restored. And it is with joy that I want to live for you. How do we respond in crisis? I want to challenge us today to say, God, we want to be a generous church. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray this morning that not an ounce of condemnation would be on any heart, but the lavishness of your love and your grace toward us would come and disciple hearts this morning. May we leave here changed, Jesus. May we leave here in love with you. And may we leave here ready to be your generous people. God, I pray for this church. I pray that we would go from strength to strength. And I pray that you would make us the most generous people in the city. That the poor would be fed. That your church would be built that families and marriages would be strengthened, God, because we are generous, because you, God, are generous. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.